in for us. Um, the passage that John would like us to read from this morning is Romans 12, and we're going to be reading chapters 1 through 2 tonight. Romans 12, a living sacrifice. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of, your, to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. I'm just going to pray quickly before John comes to speak to us. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the, the moment in the week when all the hustle and the bustle and the, the mayhem of the week can, can just subside for a moment, Father, as we spend the time together opening up your word. Father, I, I thank you for John Nixon this morning. Father, I pray that you'll have blessed his time as he prepared. Father, I know that you'll be giving him the words that you want us to hear this morning. Father, I pray that you'll, you'll just set lost now as listeners. I pray that you'll open our minds, that we can hear the words you want us to hear, and open our hearts, Father, that we can hear the message you've got for us this morning. And Father, I just pray that you'll, you'll send your Spirit to just cover this whole building, Father, in each of the rooms from the smallest person right up to where we're sitting in here this morning, Father. I, I pray you'll bless each of the teachers in this building this morning that the good news that you have for us will be told. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Um, and thank you to, to Marcus and the band for leading us in worship uh, to God this morning and for Pete for reading the passage and praying over us as we uh, move into to Romans for one day only. Um, so as you'll have gathered by now, we're, we're taking a break from this weekend from, from Revelation, and, and we're in Romans instead, and we've moved from a, a relatively unfamiliar sort of text, I guess, into a very familiar text. A lot of these, uh, these passages will be very familiar to you. Um, and we've also jumped right into the middle of, of Romans. So I guess the question I want to ask, first of all, is uh, why am I bringing this text this morning to you? Um, well, back in January's Engage, the Somervilles were leading that night, um, and amongst other things, they were asking us to pray for church unity. And this really hit a chord with me at the time, um, and it was actually before John had asked me to preach, um, and I really couldn't shake it. And when I got thinking more about it, I started to pray against passivism, against the temp uh, temptation for us to take it easy to coast, to not invest in each other's lives, to be comfortable in our own safety blanket that we so often wrap around ourselves. All things that we can so easily slide into if we're not paying attention, if our gaze is drawn away from Christ. 
Church unity needs to be something fought for. And these passages give us a bit of an indication as to why this is important for us and gives us a few practical steps uh, needed to ensure that we stay united in Christ. So if you have a Bible, please do have it open in front of you. Uh, We will jump a wee bit around the passage, so it'll be helpful to have it to hand if you could. So as I've shared already, we are jumping right into the middle of Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And the text, start by saying, the text starts by saying, I appeal to you therefore. It starts with, I appeal to you therefore. And the word therefore is used quite a lot in the Bible. There's, in the ESV version, it's uh, mentioned 785 times to be exact. And when we see this word being used, I want to encourage you to pose a question to yourself. As this word encourage us to, encourages us to take a pause and to consider something. And I'm going to ask you, not a rhetorical question, but can anyone tell me what the question they should be asking themselves when they hear the word, therefore, in the Bible? What is it there for? Yes, exactly. Well done. I wasn't expecting anyone there. Fantastic. What is it there for? Um, It is asking us to consider the purpose of this junction in the writing. It's a pivot moment. And of all the pivot moments in the Bible, this is a pretty huge one. You see, this passage you see marks a noticeable shift in what Paul had been writing to the Romans up until this point. Despite there being elements of practical teaching in the first 11 chapters of the book, traditionally it can be split into the theoretical in 1 to 11, and then the more practical teaching in 12 to 16. It is vital, however, that we read and learn from the whole book and understand verses in light of the teaching that is held within the other chapters. When Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, it is important that we understand that it was wrote as one letter There was no chapters, there was no verses in his letter. It was one continual letter that he was writing to the church in Rome. And I don't know about you, but languages do not come easily to me at all. In school, I learned French and some Spanish, but I scraped by barely getting a GCSE in French. The theory of languages simply didn't stick in my mind and memory well at all. It wasn't until I spent half a year in Ecuador where I was in a position to learn both the theory and the practical, that I started to make real progress in developing theoretical or conversational Spanish. If I had just done the practical, I wouldn't have picked up the language as quickly as I did. And if I had already experienced how simply learning the theory didn't really work for me at all, we both need theory and practical. And some of you may love learning about God, the theology of God is just something that you love to delve into. Reading your Bible, understanding more about his character, his redemption, his awesomeness. However, putting the theology into practice is something you may struggle with. Evangelism may seem extremely daunting to you. Serving and understanding your gifting is a challenge, or maybe you struggle to relinquish control to the Holy Spirit. You feel like as long as you are reading your Bible, then that is enough for you. Potentially, you've grown comfortable. Alternatively, maybe you love the practical, you love serving, worshiping, being part of something bigger than yourself. But when it comes to taking time to learn more about God, you struggle. When it comes to slowing down, spending time in God's Word, understanding and learning more about Him, you tell yourself you don't have the time or you think that learning theology isn't for you. There are plenty of other people that enjoy that, but it's not just for me. And I know I've shared two extreme examples here, but we can easily see where our naturally, natural tendencies draw us to. For some, the knowledge of God comes easier, and for some, the practical side of living out our faith becomes easier. But I want to challenge you this morning to not settle for that. Paul is teaching us in Romans that we both need to know God and serve Him in light of his knowledge, this knowledge, 
They go hand in hand, and they cannot be separated. In light of all of this, let us quickly run through the therefore content, um, the theology um, as such. And just as a, a bit of an aside, when you hear the word theology, I, just, I don't want you to be daunted by that word. Theology simply means the study of God. So please never be put off by it. Don't say to yourself, oh, I don't do theology. That's like saying I don't want to know more about God. Which I hope none of you, and I pray that none of you feel that way. So after we run through, um, we're going to run through, sorry, the, uh, the first 11 verses very, very quickly. So firstly, in the first few chapters, Paul explains to the readers, God is fully righteous, that in his righteousness he extends wrath towards unrighteous. In Romans 1.18 it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And he then goes on to explain that no one is righteous in his own right. In, Paul, in Romans 3.11-12, Paul quotes the psalm by saying, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good not even one. Secondly, from telling us the bad news about our state, Paul goes on to explain the good news. He shares with the readers God's remarkable response to our sin and how this response does not diminish or contradict, but instead upholds God's righteousness. We are justified by God's grace, which he extends to us as a gift. In Romans 3, 23, 24, he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What wonderful news. Thirdly, he extends on this by sharing that those who are in Christ have absolute assurance of their hope in Christ, and that they can live with a peace that surpasses every human circumstance, knowing that they are fully justified before a holy and righteous God. He says in Romans 5, 8-11, But God shows His love for us, that, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his, this, his life. More than that, we, will, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation." And finally, Paul explains that the gospel is good news for all people of all ethnicities and culture, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. In Romans 10, 11, 13, he says, For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame, for there is no uh, distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved." And there's so much more that could be said, obviously, about these chapters, but I'll leave that to, to John for another sermon series, potentially in the future, if he ever chooses to go down that road. But isn't that just such wonderful news, uh, such a beautiful description of the gospel outlined there? There isn't any greater motivation to choose to live lives dedicated to worshiping God and following His way. It is clear to see where Paul's heart was at the end of this chapter as he finishes with a following, at such an amazing doxology, he finishes with, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So let's get into the text today. So verse 1 starts with, I appeal with you, 
I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And the first thing I want to focus on is this idea that Paul is asking us to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. So what does it mean to do this? Well, for the early readers, regardless of whether they were Jew or Gentile, the concept of sacrifice was a very familiar thing. Sacrifice was an animal or a foodstuff that you gave to God, and once it was given, it was no longer your possession. This was a familiar concept for even the pagans at the time. They would have been sacrificing animals and produce to their gods, and everyone would have known that once a goat had been given up for sacrifice, for example, it was no longer the person's possession, it was dead. And if it was in a godly context, obviously that would have been given over to a, for a holier purpose, a purpose that was, more, it was greater than it was originally intended to. But when we think about sacrifice, however, we think about it quite differently, don't we? We often think of it in terms of maybe sacrificing our own time, giving up watching the football in order to run your kids to, to the club they're part of. Or, and for us, rarely does the word sacrifice mean the depth of meaning that Paul is referring to here. In this text, it is vital to we, that we actually understand what is being sacrificed. It isn't just you, it's your entire body. And we sometimes say things like, my heart is dedicated to you, God, or the hardships I'm going through are an example of how we sacrifice ourselves to the Lord. But the text is saying that our physical bodies are sacrificed to God. And for the early readers especially, the concept would have been quite startling. You see, the body was often viewed as something negative and bad, and that spirituality actually involved the cultivation of your mind and your soul, not your body. But by saying this, Paul is indicating that a response has to be a whole body response, which contains a highly practical element and not just a holy spiritual one. John Stott explains by saying the following, Paul made it plain in his exposure of human depravity in chapter 3 that has revealed itself, that is, human depravity, through our bodies, in tongue which practices, tongues that practice deceit and lips which spread poison, in mouths which are full of cursing and bitterness, in feet that are, which are swift to shed blood, in eyes which look away from God. Conversely, Christian sanctity shows itself in the deeds of the body. So we are to offer different parts of our bodies to God as instruments of righteousness. We are to offer our whole selves to God. But what about the living part? What does this signify? Well, it most likely, likely, signi likely signifies that it is a constant sacrifice that we make. Usually we associate sacrifice with the killing of something, but by saying a living sacrifice, Paul is instructing us that we need to be continually sacrificing our whole bodies to God, continually renewing our position of holy obedience to, to God and being fully at God's disposal. I heard a great quote this week whilst researching this passage that has really stuck with me. It went, says the following, it is important to realize that your justification will cost you nothing, but your sanctification will cost you everything. It's important to realize that your justification will cost you nothing, but your sanctification will cost you everything. God has given us the free gift of justification. We are not righteous. We have no claim in and of ourselves to righteousness. Only He is righteous. But through Christ, He has made us righteous. Our response, Paul teaches, is to become a living sacrifice here, a living sacrifice to Him. 
It will cost us everything. But folks, there is no other response to be had here. It is the least we can do in response to his magnificent grace. And Jesus taught on this topic explicitly. In Matthew 16, 24 to 25, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So what does that look like to present your body as a living sacrifice for you to pick up your cross and live a cruciform life? And what I mean by the word cruciform is simply that our human lives should be shaped by the cross. And this encompasses our whole lives. It means that for us that are in Christ, we are endeavoring to live a life that is shaped and formed by the cross and the cross alone in our everyday. As we parent in our marriage, in our singleness, in our work environments, as we stand in the sports field, whatever it might be, our lives should be shaped solely by the cross. To be a living sacrifice is to live in such a way of openness and availability to God's will that it reflects how much we are trusting and loving the sacrifice of Jesus. This is why Paul says we do this by the mercies of God. Because the Spirit isn't simply sitting in a church building waiting for us to come visit Him in a worship service. But He has occupied our bodies. Our bodies may worship at many more moments than in church services. So spiritual worship is an all-encompassing thing. And because we are able to worship by God's mercies, our worship is not man-generated, but spirit-generated. Paul goes on to continue in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So the first question we need to ask ourselves is what does it mean to be conformed to this world? When you hear that question, what do you automatically think of? I reckon a lot of you are thinking about something that is perceived as a major threat to Christian Uh, living a a major Christian concern, perhaps something you think would have a detrimental effect to to Christian witness, maybe. Maybe it's a growing inability to share your faith in the workplace without fear of repercussions. And so the conformity to this world is sitting there and not sharing your faith in case you you end up offending somebody. But I want to challenge you, however, to, to maybe look at this slightly different. You see, there are more deceptive conformities to the world than merely the things we do not like or the things we see as the major threats. You're unlikely to be tempted to conform to the patterns of the things that already cut against you. You're probably more likely to be tempted to conform to the things that you already like, those things that feel gratifying and indulging. There are so many stories that the world is trying to tell us are truth, and often they are extremely subtle and take a discerning mind to pick up on. For example, the world often tells us that we are what we have. To feel feel validated and accepted, you need more things, or that you need to be perfect, that you need to never look frazzled, always need to look in control, and have your life in complete order. These messages are bombarding us from all angles, And there are so many more that I'm sure you can think of. These are often the most dangerous of conformities that we deal with because they are subtle. 
They are hard to spot in and off ourselves, and we often do not believe that we are being conformed by them, even though we actually are. Dallas Willard, in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, uses the following illustration to demonstrate this point further. He said the following, Recently, a pilot was practicing high-speed maneuvers in a jet fighter. She turned the controls for what she thought was a steep ascent and flew straight into the ground. She was unaware that she had been flying upside down. This is a parable of human existence in our time. Not exactly that everyone is crashing, though there is enough of that, but most of us as individuals and world society as a whole live at high speed and often with no clue to whether we are flying upside down or right side up. Indeed, we are haunted by a strong suspicion that there may be no difference, or at least that there is unknown or or irrelevant. You see, what he's getting at here is that he's saying that we so often are moving at such a high pace that that we can quite easily and unthinkingly adopt the worldview that society is teaching us without even realizing it, and that this is ultimately will ultimately filter down from our unconscious assumptions into our resulting thought patterns and into, finally, our behaviors. So I challenge you today, be on guard, be discerning, and support each other as a church. So we are told not to conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Whilst it is important that our whole lives are transformed, Paul here is emphasizing the particular battleground of the mind And it's important to realize that what we think and what we dwell on and what we consider is of significant importance. So often the things we give ourselves over to thinking upon end up being the things that drive our lives. They become our motivations, the things we place value upon. Paul is saying here that our mind's focus needs to be on Christ. And if you allow that to be the case, then when it comes to testing, you will stand firm and be able to discern the will of God. For all of us who have been studying through the book of Proverbs in our Bible studies every month, this theme rings extremely true, doesn't it? It's very strong. That, though, that we choose the ways of wisdom, we choose to dwell on the Lord's instruction. And if we do that, then we will know the will of God. I heard it say that the Christian life is a journey of unlearning and learning. There are so many things we need to unlearn, and this is what Paul is talking about when he says about not being conformed. We have been absorbing so much of the wisdom of the world without even us knowing it. We need to unlearn this conformity to earthly wisdom. We need to do that by crucifying ourselves to that life. We need to acknowledge that what we thought was good, the good life, isn't the good life. A good life is a life that is transformed into the likeness of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I want to emphasize the importance of the Holy Spirit here because our transformation and sanctification is something we're instructed to do and that can sound daunting and unattainable in and of itself. We, however, can never forget that we are entirely reliant on the Holy Spirit doing this work within us. We do not do this in our own strength by mere willpower. It is the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, who intercedes for us. And in this work, the Holy Spirit can be described metaphorically as a light. He both illuminates the sin within us, leading us to repentance, and He's also a light that reveals to us the truth within God's Word, 
leading us to a path of greater spiritual maturity and greater understanding on the calling that Christ puts upon all of our lives. Verse 3 continues, For by the grace given to me I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. In this verse, I want to zoom, on this in, zoom in on this interesting phrase that Paul uses, measure of faith. I don't know about you, but whenever I, I hear this phrase mentioned in the Bible, I automatically view this as a singular thing, this measure of faith. It is something quantitative. You maybe look around and see others uh, and wish you had as much faith as they do. Um, I often think of maybe like in science class you have a beaker and their amount of faith is up here and maybe your faith is down here and, and you measure each other off each other um, through perceptions. And I don't really think that's very helpful. Um, and I don't think that's how this should be interpreted either. I think it goes against what Paul is asking us to do by not thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. The word measure here is in the Greek is the word metron, which is where we get the word meter from, which instead of being an actual uh, amount, it is actually the standard of measurement. It's the standard that we judge ourselves of. So what is the standard of measurement that God has assigned to us? Well, is that we all, all of us who are in Christ have been given saving faith in Christ, crucified, and that is what we are to measure ourselves against. It is with this understanding that we measure ourselves. And this leads to a clear understanding that we are primarily all the same regarding our salvation, regardless of our background, abilities, or perceived gifts. We are all the same in our salvation. The gospel both ensures that we do not think too highly of ourselves. We are all sinners, and despite our best efforts, in our own strength, we can only ever earn judgment unless we accept the forgiveness of Christ. And on the other side of the coin, the gospel also ensures that we do not think of ourselves lowlier than we ought to. Whilst all of us are sinners, those that are in Christ are saved sinners, loved and treasured and adored by the only one whose ultimate opinion matters, and that is our maker and king. So we are not to think more highly of ourselves, but we're also not to think lowlier about ourselves than we ought to. Paul continues, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Again, Paul here is emphasizing again and again our unity in Christ. So why is he doing this? Well, the church in Rome at the time were a mixture of Jews and Gentiles, and Paul goes on to mention later in Romans that there were those that were weak in faith and those that were strong. And this gives us a slight indication that whilst there potentially weren't major fallings out within the church in Rome, Paul is writing to an extremely eclectic group of people. Rome at the time was a melting pot of cultures. And from all the different ethnic, they came from all different ethnic backgrounds and of varying degrees of Christian maturity. And to me, that sounds quite familiar, don't you think? And I believe there's something for us to learn from this today. You see, despite what we, uh, some might think, the church is nothing like a local football club or political party which are brought together by similar passions, beliefs, or principles. The church should never look like that. The church should be open and welcome to all generations, all people groups, 
and people with varying political persuasions. The moment the church starts looking exactly how I would like it to look is the moment we have a real issue. The church is the bride of Christ. It is He that unites us, and we need to be united in our devotion to Him and to Him alone. I came across a wonderful quote uh, this week which draws out this point further. It says the following, What a beautiful picture of reconciliation and unity we receive in Romans 12. If individuals have been transformed and are growing in the image of Christ, then they are moving more and more into the picture of reconciliation that the Christ is calling to embody. It's called to embody. Only if we have been totally justified do we cease seeking to self-justify, which means we do not take vengeance or operate in self-defense mode or create opportunities for self-exaltation. Instead, walking in the confidence and humility of the gospel, we can love our neighbors well and submit ourselves to the whole of the body of Christ, providing a visible picture of the reconciling, reconciling work of Christ's cross. And this witness commends the gospel to those outside the church. By saying all these things, I am by no way advocating that we do not have our differences. Of course we do. God has made us all extremely unique, and we will explore this topic further shortly as we obviously have been given many different temperaments, backgrounds, abilities, and callings. But what unites us is that we all share this faith, and this faith is ground for our unity and togetherness. This is a bit of an aside, and, but I don't know about you, but sometimes I catch myself sort of daydreaming, I guess, wondering what our worship will be like in heaven. And despite our best efforts to join in with the angels in heaven whilst we are still on this earth, and apologies, Marcus, I don't think it'll sound like what it did today. The words might be the same, but the reality is that God is bringing sinners to himself from all around the world, from all a plethora of backgrounds and, uh, and places, and I think it'll be an amazing melting pot of people that will be singing to the glory of God, and it'll sound extremely different and glorious and wonderful all at the same time. I'm looking forward to that moment. Coming towards the end of this section, Paul continues, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And I'm not going to go into too much detail about what these specific gifts are and why he shares these gifts specifically to the church in Rome while sharing different gifts to the church in Corinth. But I want to draw out your attention to one interesting aside before making my final point this morning. Throughout the book of Revelation, John has been pointing us in the direction of a lot of numbers. There's an awful lot of numbers in Revelation, as John would say. And can anyone remember what the number seven represents in the Bible at all? It communicates a sense of fullness and completeness. And Paul more than likely listed these seven specific gifts for a purpose. And when we drill into these gifts a bit more, it can be argued that every Christian has some element of these gifts and that we are to use them. For example, we have the gift of prophecy, and despite how we interpret that gift, we all have the ability to discern the will of God by reading His Word through the power of the Holy Spirit and by sitting under His wisdom. 
Service, we can all serve each other, that's obvious. Teaching, we all have the ability to teach and correct each other, otherwise it wouldn't say in Proverbs 27 that iron sharpens iron. We can all sharpen each other. Encouragement, we all have the ability to be perceptive and give specific encouragement to those around us. Generosity, Jesus taught that even the widow with her two small coins in the temple, two small copper coins, could give generously. Leading, we all have the ability to set the example and lead by doing. Mercy, Christ has given us, given us all a heart of compassion, and we should be asking the Holy Spirit to be increasing our heart for those in need. The point I'm getting here is that whilst God gives different gifts to different people, that are needed for the gospel to flourish, is also allowing new gifts to grow and blossom in those that he has saved. This is going to sound a bit of an, a strange, strange example, so please bear with me, but back in the day, it might surprise you that I used to play a bit of FIFA. Uh, and for those who don't know what FIFA is, it's a football computer game. And in FIFA, all the players are given a certain ranking for each individual skill set. So, for example, Phil Rainey, he might have acceleration 85, whilst... John over there might have acceleration 50 or something like that. All these were displayed on a chart that was a hexagon. You were, right. Maybe back in the day, it might have been a bit quicker, but anyway. It was displayed on a hexagon, so a six-sided shape. And each point was a certain attribute. And at the point of each attribute was 100, you were marked at 100, and in the middle was a zero. So every single player would have this shape, which emphasized certain attributes over others. The thing about this chart was that everyone had some elements of all the attributes, and that's what I'm getting here with these gifts. God has gifted us all with varying degrees of these gifts. I might not feel like I'm a great encourager, but I know that I can be used by God to encourage someone at a time if that person really needs. The wonderful thing is that God isn't done giving us these gifts either, no matter what age we are, no matter what stage of the Christian walk we find ourselves on, God is not done sanctifying you, molding you through the work of the Holy Spirit into the image of Christ. I'm drawing to a close here, and I'm conscious that we have covered a lot of ground in a short period of time. But as we finish this morning, I want to encourage you that if you do not know Christ yet, if you haven't previously affirmed that what we talked about at the start of the sermon, that only God is righteous, that there is nothing within us that is righteous in and of ourselves, that God in His mercy and grace made a way for His Son to take punishment of our sins so we may receive forgiveness, be made right before God, then I encourage you to respond to this calling this morning. If you'd like to talk or pray with anyone about this, there'll be people at the front here who would love to pray with you and speak about this further. For those of us that are in Christ, then Paul is teaching us this morning what our full body mind and soul response should be to this amazing gospel. He is instructing us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice daily in every walk of life that you find yourself in, to live a cruciform life, a life formed by the cross, to not be conformed by this world, to unlearn the ways of the world and be transformed into the likeness of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us to understand that the church is the bride of Christ and it is He and He alone that unites us. And finally, to use the gifts that God has given us to serve each other and the world. Let's pray.
Lord, I, I thank you for the gospel, Lord. I thank you that despite the fact that we do not deserve any grace, any gift that you give us, Lord, you give it freely because of Christ crucified on the cross. And we pray this morning as a church that we would be encouraged. We would be encouraged to know that we are able to be used by you for your glory to encourage each other, the bride of Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just encourage our hearts, challenge our hearts to think of those ways that you are looking to challenge us this morning. Form us into your Christ-likeness, I pray. For from you and through you and to you are all things, and to you be the glory forever. Amen.